welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the Gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the City of Lagos and beyond renewed by the Gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. Good morning, church. Our Bible reading will be taken from 1 Kings chapter 3, reading from verse 5 to 15. At the end of the reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond with thanks be to God. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, you have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge these great people of yours? The speech pleased the Lord, that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked a long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways, to keep my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. This is the word of the Lord. Yes, it's me again. <laughs> Don't worry. You, you soon stop seeing me after today. Um, but no, it's, um, it's good to um, always be here with everyone. And so what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks is we've been considering the question, um, what has God made us for? What has God made us for? 
And really, that whole theme, there are many words you can use to describe it, but the thing that we've been talking about over the last um, two weeks and now today is the topic being made for more. Um, and so we, we've seen that God has really wired us to be ambitious. God has wired us to dream. And so that was the first thing we started by looking at. God has wired us to dream. Um, but then last week, we then saw that if God has wired us to dream, how do those dreams come about? Um, and we saw that it is when we are um, daring, when we take risks, believing not so much in the certainty of the outcome, but in who our God is. And so we, we take risks because we have faith in God. And you know, one of the things I said last week is that we, believe, we should believe more in a sovereign God rather than the sovereignty of God. And so that's where we've been. But if you've been following along and if you've been thinking, the question that necessarily follows is, okay, yes, so we should, we should be ambitious, we should dream. Um, and how do those dreams come about is by taking risks. The question that follows from that is, what are our dreams for? Right? Like, yes, I get I should dream, I should take risks, but what are our dreams really for? Because many of us know people who have taken dreams, who have had dreams, who have um, taken risks, and who, when you really think about what they've done or what they've dreamt about and what they've aspired to and what they've accomplished, it leaves a sour taste in your mouth. And maybe some of us are like that. Maybe we had certain kinds of dreams that, you know, they're not quite the best. And so I think about myself again, another um, primary school story. Um, but one of the things, I think I've said this here before, one of the things I wanted to become um, as a younger chap was I wanted to be a head of state. I wanted to be the military head of state. And that, that, past, that one is in, in my past. It's like, there's, I can't make it again. Like, I can't make it. But, like, I wanted to be head of state. And the way I wanted to do it, so that was the dream, I wanted to um, take a risk. I was going to stage coups. That was, going, that was my sole motivation for, for wanting to join the military, right? The only problem is that 1999, um, 1998, Abacha dies. Um, 99, Abubakar hands over to And I was like, no, there's no, there's no future here again. So let me change course. But maybe some of us have, have been like that. Like the, the only reason why you, you have dreamt and the only reason why you're aspiring to something is really because of yourself. But is that what ambition really is for? Yes, we want to glorify God, but when you talk about glorifying God at the, at the smallest detail or the smallest level, really what ambition is really about is serving other people. And so today we're looking at, at that last question, or we're considering that last question, that we are made to serve. Yes, we are made to dream, we are made to take risks, but we are made to serve. And so let's just pray as we look into God's word this morning. Lord, we thank you because your word is perfect. The 96th verse of the 119th Psalm says, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Lord, we thank you that words that were written 2,000 plus years ago, 3,000 plus years ago, Lord, can still apply to those of us in 21st century Lagos. So, Lord, we ask that you help our hearts this morning. Lord, help us to be 
to be submissive, to, to hear you, to hear what you have for us. Lord, we pray that you would um, remove distractions from us, remove doubts, remove fears. Lord, remove the things, oh God, Lord, that cause us anxiety at this point. Lord, we pray that what we don't know, that you teach us. Lord, we pray that what we are not, that you make us. And Lord, that at the end of this, Lord, that our hearts will be drawn to see Jesus and to follow him in all his beauty. In Jesus' name. And so the first thing um, we'll see this morning is the purpose of ambition. The purpose of ambition. And so if you listen to that reading that was read to us, it's really about the story of Solomon. At this point in the life of the people of Israel, um, so the, the monarchy has been established. There was first a bad king, Saul, um, and then God kicked him out. And then God, if you talk about divine coups, God brought in David, right? And after David, David died, and then he handed over the baton to his son, Solomon. And you think at this point that, oh, okay, Solomon has a strategy because he's obviously been in kingship school all his life. Um, if, you, if you know um, anything about royalty, from when you are born, they begin to train you. And so Solomon has been trained all his life. You think that, oh, Solomon actually knows what he's going to do. Well, actually, before we begin in verse um, 5 that was read to us, what Solomon has done is that Solomon was praying and offering incense to God. And it says in verse 5 that at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And I think we should just pause there because sometimes we forget. We think that this whole thing really begins with us. But what we see in this story, and I think what really is true for all of our ambitious projects in life, friends, is that it begins with God. But it begins not just in the sense that, oh, yes, God is the one that starts it. But we see here that God is the one who actually takes the initiative and comes to Solomon. Friends, God is more interested in your life than you are interested in your own life. God is more interested in seeing your dreams come to pass than you're actually interested in seeing your own dreams come to pass. And what, you, what we see here, what this story tells us already is that what you believe about God determines what you ask him for. If you think that God is just interested in the, oh, yes, the Bible reading part of my life. God is just interested in the, you know, business part of my life. God is just interested in some sector of, of my life, I'm not interested in totality of my life. What, what will happen is that you're going to limit God and what he can accomplish in your life. And so we see here that God is the one who takes this gracious initiative and comes to Solomon. But then God comes to Solomon and he gives him a blank check. I don't know if you've had any blank checks ever. I haven't. I'm still praying for one. <laughs> but we do know people who win the lottery, right? Like, that's as close to a blank check as you get. Someone gives you, like I saw, you know, as I was prepping for this, $314 million. Take, just go and do whatever you want with it. And, of course, you've heard the stories about people who win lotteries. What usually happens is that many people who win lotteries, just give them, like, one year, two years, three years, five years, they are back to where they started from because they really don't know what to do with the money. And so you'll have thought, what is Solomon that's actually what the text wants us to answer. What is Solomon going to ask for? Because what you ask for when you have a blank check shows what your priority actually is. I mean, for some of us, right, 
we haven't gotten blank checks, but actually we they dream about having a blank check. If only somebody can give me a new canal, I will praise all the people that have been saying rubbish about me. If only somebody can give me 20 liters of petrol every month. <laughs> what you spend the blank check on reflects what you think priority is. And so what the text wants us to see is that what Solomon asked for is actually Solomon's priority. So when we come to verse 9, Solomon asks God for a discerning heart to govern. Like, like, Solomon, why didn't you ask for peace? Because that's really important politically, right? If you don't have peace in society, like, you won't be able to accomplish anything. Solomon, why don't you ask for a good wife? Right? Because you need peace in the home to be able to rule in society. So why don't you ask for all these things? And it's as though Solomon is telling us that, yes, these things are important, but for what God has called me to do, what God has called me to accomplish, I need a discerning heart to govern. Why? Why? Because Solomon realizes that the point of his life, up to this time, the point of the kingship, the point of this elevation that God has given him was to serve the people God had given him to. And friends, this is at the heart of all of our dreams and ambitions. Ultimately, why God gives us dreams is so that we can serve the people around us. God hasn't given us our dreams and the, the desires that he has given us and all the longing that he has given us for us to just line our pockets. God hasn't given us all those things, those things that we think are way ahead of us, those exams and all those things that even though you may not quite see how it connects to other people, the reason why God has given you those things, friends, is so that you can serve. And there's a word that Solomon keeps using in this passage about the people that God has given to you. He doesn't say my people, he says your people. And what we see here is that how we see people actually determines how we will treat them. There's a passage in the Bible much later in, in Mark chapter 8 where Jesus touches somebody whose eyes was blind. It's the only time Jesus ever had to do something twice. I don't know why. Because Jesus could have healed him once. But I think Jesus was trying to pass across a, a couple of messages to us. And I think one of the messages is this. Because when Jesus heals that person... Jesus says, can you see now? He says, yes, I can see, but I see men as trees. And there's a whole different line we can go with that. We don't have time for that today. But I think the point is really how you see people determines how you treat them. Many of us do see people, but we see them as trees. We see them as money tree. We see them as promotion tree. We see them as popularity tree, the, the kind of tree where you can tap resources from. But ultimately, what God wants us to see is that the people he has entrusted to us, the people he has called us to serve in our gospel communities, in our church, in our workspace, in our homes, in all of these different areas are not your people. They are his people. And if you recognize that ultimately you are accountable to God for the people that he brings into our lives, it determines how we treat them. Solomon says, these people are not mine, God. These people are yours. But if we see people as God sees them, how do we then treat them? 
And I think this is really, really important because what we see that Solomon does is after God answers his prayer request, like many of us are praying for things right now, to show us that Solomon's heart is really about service. In verse 15, he offers a thanksgiving offering to God, but when he gets back home, what does he do? He throws a party for the people in his court. Solomon realizes that this elevation that I have gotten actually is not so much about me, it's about all of us. He treats them as God's people. But you see, the problem with how we treat people really comes from this, that often we treasure things and use people. What should actually happen is that we should treasure people and use things. But many times we treasure things and use people. And so we like to be very efficient. For those of us who like to accomplish things, we like to be very efficient. We like to be, you know, straight to the point. We like to do all the things that we are supposed to do in a manner that saves us the, the, the most amount of time and, and that also gives us a return on our energy. But actually, friends, God hasn't called us to efficiency in our relationship with people. He has called us to effectiveness. I was listening to a podcast one time and, you know, the person just said it very brilliantly. The person was talking about how he was working, he had been working in a certain place, working with um, um, Stephen Covey. Some of us know that name. He wrote the, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And, you know, he was saying how that, his name is Scott, Scott Miller. He was saying that how that people are always asking him, oh, give me an interview on the Seven Habits of Highly Efficient People. And that, no, actually, the book is not about efficiency. The book is about effectiveness. Those are two very different things. Efficiency is, I don't have to, you know, find out too much. I don't, we can just go straight to the point, right? Those of us who are, quote unquote, socially awkward, just go straight to the point. Just save time. Um, yeah, how much do you need? The barest minimum in our interactions. Oh, this is what I did wrong. You do that. All of those things just so that we can be very efficient. But actually what God calls us to is effectiveness. And friends, effectiveness takes time. Effectiveness takes us sitting down with people and listening to them. And maybe the person isn't as concise. Maybe, you know, we don't have all the time. Like, ah, this thing is really demanding. But actually, that is the life that God calls us to. Because ultimately, what God has given us, the dreams, the ambitions, the plans, is not for ourselves. It's for the people that he has put in our lives. God has called us to effectiveness, not efficiency. We must treasure people, not treasure things. And that's what Solomon shows us here. And so how can we cultivate this heart, this heart that sees that our purpose is ultimately to serve? I think the, the, the most important thing is that we must be people who marinate in grace. Like the grace of God has so deeply affected our hearts, affected our lives, affected every area of our being, that it actually changes how we relate to the people around us. You see, the problem is that many times, and you see that in the different stories the Bible presents of people's relationships, the problem is that many times we think that people have done more to us than we have done to God. Many of us think that actually we are better to God than, we, and than the people in our lives are to us. And so we don't like people. This person crossed me once. I asked the person. This person said something I didn't like. I asked the person. This person behaved a certain way. I asked the person. And really, where that heart comes from is not so much that I know somebody who likes indiscipline. It's not so much that you're somebody who is tough. It's that you are somebody whose heart has not been steeped in grace. 
You remember the story of the um, man who did not forgive, right? He was forgiven a certain amount. And then somebody who else is owing him another amount, he sees the person and says, you are a useless guy. You are stupid. You are owing me money. Go and lock him in jail. And when the king hears is that you're actually a worthless fellow. You haven't seen how much I've done for you. Friends, when we are quick, and, and I'm not trying to get into, yes, Emmanuel, you don't know how difficult that relationship was. Yes, Emmanuel, you don't know how stupid that person is. You don't know the things they said. But if you are quick, you are the kind of person that somebody offends you once and you block the person. Friends, your heart has not been steeped in grace. Grace is messy. Grace is inconvenient. You think God just likes to forgive us every time? That thing you have done a thousand times again and again, over and over, God is just like, eh, it doesn't really matter. No. Actually, the holiness of God demands that he should punish the things that we have transgressed him for. And yet, his holiness, his, his holiness will not be subverted by his grace. And so grace finds a way for the, for the demands of his holiness to be met by Jesus Christ actually satisfying the demands of his holiness and so that that grace can be extended to us. Friends, our heart must be steeped in the grace of God. It must be people that you remember again. What has Christ done for me? You think about it again and again. My spouse has messed up. Oh, this marriage is just, yeah, let's just day our day. Grace. That friendship, for some of us, friendships have been broken. Grace. Some of us, relationships at work have been broken. Grace. Oh, yes, maybe there comes a time eventually when you can't be as close to that person. But you see, what grace does is that grace always extends the rope. Grace always extends the rope. There is a very long lifeline before the relationship line gets cut. Must be people whose hearts are steeped in grace. Secondly, we must think in corporate over individual. Think corporate over individual. And you see that already in, in, in what I said. Somehow, Solomon doesn't think that this elevation that God has given me is just about me. Solomon sees, like I said in verse 15, that this thing actually is, all, is about all of us. Yeah, on one level, it means if you get a promotion at work, do party for people in your GC. That's a direct application. But actually, it means that we must fight against the individualistic tendencies that exist in our society and in our world. Where everything is about me. How can I say? How can I look good? How can I shine forth? How can I? How can I? How can I? But you see, again, when your heart is steeped in grace, you, you think not just how can I, not even just how can you, but how can we? Because you see, when Christ saves us, he doesn't save us to a personal relationship with him only. He saves us into a corporate relationship with him that is expressed privately. And this is why there is nothing like a Christian who is not part of a church. This is why there is nothing like a Christian who is not plugged into community. Because ultimately, God hasn't saved us by ourselves. God has saved us as a body, an embassy that is traveling and journeying to heaven. And while we are doing that, we are a signpost of his grace to a dying world. Friends, if our, the purpose of our ambition must be fully redeemed, must be people who think corporate over individual. How can we flourish? Maybe God has given you something and you see someone who is going a certain way. Maybe you're not close to the person, but you can find out, how can I help this person? 
How can God's grace be extended to this person? You see, thinking corporate over individual. So that's the purpose of ambition. But actually what Solomon shows us also is that ambition is paradoxical. And so I go to the second point. The paradox of ambition. The paradox of ambition. And so, you know, like I was saying, when we are introduced to this guy's story, he has been prepared all his life for this. In fact, his father, if, you, if you're familiar with the story, his father had made a promise to his mother. And when the story starts in 1 Kings chapter 1, it seems as though that that, 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 um, that promise won't come to fulfillment. And so his mother has to make an intercession to his father and say, Daddy, the money we set aside for this child's masters, right? Like some of us, like some of our parents have, have said in times past, we have to do it. And so she says, King David... That promise you made about Solomon's life ambition, it's time to fulfill it. And so Solomon and um, David ensures that Solomon rises to the throne and Solomon actually comes into that place that he has designed him for. But then when Solomon comes in to show us again that Solomon all his life has been prepared for this, Solomon actually recognizes the opposition that exists in his life. Not, not yet, guys. Not yet. Too much ginger, too much ginger. Solomon recognizes that there is opposition. And so for him to actually fulfill this ambition that he has, the guy goes, he takes down some people, he locks some people in jail, ensuring that actually he has the rightful authority to the throne. And so all his life, Solomon has been prepared for this. Solomon knows what he's actually going to do. And yet when Solomon comes to God, when he's asking God, it's as though Solomon doesn't know what he's going to do. When Solomon comes to God, it's as though Solomon is unsure of himself. And you see, friends, ambition means that sometimes you are both certain and uncertain. That you are both aware of what you can do and also aware of what you cannot do at the very same time. You're somebody who is highly skilled and yet at the same time you recognize that I don't have all the skills that I fully need. That's the paradox of ambition. And we see that in life. In 2014, there was a guy who, if you're into movies, you know the name Matthew McConaughey. He won the Oscar for Best Actor, right? I like the guy. He's, he's, a, he's a very good actor. Um, and so when they call him up, he, he, you know, he says all the things that you know, they usually say. Thank the director. Thank the people that lost. <laughs> you, know, you guys are great. There was no, there was no rubbish performance. You know, he says all of those things. And then he says these words. There are three things that I need each day. One, I need something to look up to. Another to look forward to. Another is someone to chase. Okay, so something to look up to. Another to look forward to. Another is someone to chase. So he's something to look up to is God because he's looking obviously up to God. It's something to look forward to is his family. And so he thanks his dad who is late. He thanks his mom. He thanks um, his, his wife his, and, and his children. And then he says to someone to chase. So he says these words. And to my hero, that's who I chase. When I was 15 years old, I had a very important person in my life come and ask me, who's your hero? I said, I thought about it and it's me in 10 years. So that's what he says to the person. 
So I turned 25, 10 years later, and that same person comes to me and goes, are you a hero? I said, not even close. She said, why? And I said, my hero is me at 35. You see, every day and every week and every month and every year of my life, my hero is always 10 years away. I'm never going to be my hero. I'm not going to obtain that. And that's fine with me because it keeps me with somebody to keep on chasing. Now, there are different ways you can analyze that. You can say it's humble brag. Um, you know, he's, he's trying to put himself in a line. But I think he's onto something here. The paradox of ambition is that you actually have a target that you're aiming for, and yet you realize that I will never fully meet that target, and yet you keep chasing that target. When God calls Solomon, when the anointing oil is poured on Solomon, Solomon becomes the king, and yet Solomon recognizes that I'm never going to fully be king, but I'm going to keep pursuing that anyway. And friends, this is how it should be for us as children of God, that we are always on, in the paradox of ambition. We recognize what we should be, we recognize what we are now, and that we will never be that, but we keep on chasing. You see, when um, in John, when John the Baptist is, is approached and he's talking about himself, he, he says, they ask him, oh, are you the one who is to come? He says, no, I am not. But then he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. You see, if we're going to be people who actually ultimately live up to all that God has ordained for us, we recognize what we are not, and we recognize who we are, and we keep on chasing. You see, what the world wants is to lock us into one exact thing. Or if you're ambitious, you are frugal. If you're ambitious, you are direct. If you're ambitious, you are this type A personality. If you are ambitious, you keep in a certain way. And yet, the Bible says, eh, some of those things are right. But God wants us to be in a paradox that as you chase your ambition, you can be frugal and kind and generous. That you can be direct and kind. That you can explore and yet be faithful. That you can go out and yet be somebody who stays in you. See, God wants us to be people that we live in the paradox of ambition because actually that is how we will ultimately become who he has called us to. But we see three paradoxes that I want to emphasize or spend some time with in this passage. And we see that in the life of Solomon. The first paradox is strong yet weak. And we see that in verse 7. When Solomon is talking about himself, Solomon says, this person who is king, this person who has been anointed, this person whose father is David, and God has made these promises to David, he says, I am a servant, I am a little child, and I don't know how to carry out my duties. I am a servant, I am a little child, and I don't know how to carry out my duties. This guy has been in kingship school. This guy has already done things. If you, if you look at chapter two, chapter 2, he has accomplished things. And yet when he comes to God, friends, he recognizes that I'm actually weak. People outside look at Solomon and they see that he's strong. And yet Solomon says, eh, yes, I'm strong, but yet I am weak. Friends, and God wants us to live in that paradox. The paradox of strength and yet weakness, the paradox of confidence, and yet humility, the paradox of actually knowing where we are going, and yet being unsure. Jim Collins um, wrote the management book that 
you know, even in even for, for pastors and ministry people, it's a book that is actually recommended. And in that book, he's talking about how certain kinds of companies make the transition from just being good companies to actually becoming great. And he has a matrix that he uses. But you see, when he's talking about the different characteristics, and I think it's about um, six things that he lists, lists out of actually how those companies accomplish the greatness in their career, the fundamental thing he talks about is something he calls level five leadership. And he says that level five leaders are those who have a blend, an uncommon blend of personal humility and professional will. In other words, people who are both certain of what should be done, and yet they don't think that they know everything. Friends, if that is in the world, if that is in the business space, how much more should it actually characterize us? There were people who recognized that ultimately, yes, I am strong. Yes, I have ideals. Yes, I know where I'm going. Yes, I, I know all the things that I should do. I've done the courses. I've done the exams. I've done all these things. And yet, I'm still weak. I need more grace. God wants us to live in the paradox of strength and weakness because that is ultimately how we will serve the people around us. You see, friends, the greatest and most ambitious people are not people who shy away from power. They, they strategize for it. They want it. They go for it. And yet, they're never desperate for it. And so say what you will, for example, about President Goodluck Jonathan. Say anything. But when that man said in 2015 that my ambition is not worth the blood of the lives of Nigerians, he defined what service of what leadership actually is. That is ultimately to serve other people and not to serve himself. And when we display that blend, that paradox of strength and weakness, we are saying to the world that ultimately this ambition, this place that God has called me to, this place of service in my job, this place as a teenager, this place as, as somebody in the home, all these things, they are ultimately not about me. They are about God. And so I am strong and yet I am weak. I am the leader, but yes, I need people actually around me. I like how someone says it. He says, people will be impressed by your strength, but they will connect with you based on your weaknesses. People will be impressed by your strength, but they will connect with you based on your weaknesses. And so what we see actually is that Solomon says, or God shows us in the life of Solomon, that what should be the paradox that characterizes our ambition to service is strength, yet weakness. But how, what is this filled by? And we see in the life of Solomon that this, this paradox can only exist where there is a secure identity. Where we recognize that ultimately our value and the things that we accomplish is not the measure of who we are, but actually that our identity comes from somewhere else. That identity comes from something else. That identity comes from someone else. And ultimately, friends, our, our accomplishments, no matter how well your accomplishments are, no matter how great the things you do, no matter how much professional qualifications you have, there is always somebody in the room who is smarter, who has more qualifications than you. No matter how much wealth you acquire, there is always somebody who has even more wealth. No matter how many people you know, there is always somebody who knows even more people. And you see, ultimately, friends, the, 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 what, what becomes the bedrock for this paradox of strength and weakness is that we have a secure identity where identity is not based so much on what we produce or what we know or what we accomplish, but on someone else, God. 
And so Solomon is able to say, yes, I am king. But when he comes before God and he says basically to other people, I am weak. Because he knows my identity is not in what I'm able to produce. My identity is from God. Friends, let strength and weakness be the paradox that characterizes your ambition. Be the kind of person that people actually know that you are boss, and yet they know that a boss is not perfect. Be the kind of person that people know that it's not that you've lined all your dogs sneakily in a row. It's that sometimes your priorities are not even always accurate, and you're still learning in the process. People will be impressed by your strengths, but they will ultimately connect with you through your weaknesses. And so that's the paradox of strength and weakness, or, or being strong yet weak. The other paradox that we see here is being apart yet among. Being apart yet among. And so, in verse 8, Solomon describes himself as your servant. Your servant. So, he's, he's, he's God. He's, he's uniquely set apart. But he says, your servant is here among the people you have chosen. Solomon recognizes that, yes, I am distinct, but yet I'm also among the people that God has called me to serve. Friends, let our service and the ways we lead and the ways we do things show that we are actually apart from the people that God has placed us over or apart from people that God has called us to lead or apart from the, the different scenarios that God has called us to be over and yet that we are also fully among. You see, um, oftentimes, people worship people. Um, and many of us say that is wrong, but really, why, why is it wrong? It is wrong because worship and honor are two different things. Honor references closeness. Worship references distance. And so that is why ultimately we honor God and we worship God because God is at the same time both close to us. He's God with us, Emmanuel. <laughs> and yet he's God that is apart from us. He's distinct. So we honor him because we know him closely and yet we worship him because of the distance. The problem is that many times when we worship people, what we are ultimately saying is that this person is so great, they are so separate from me, and God is saying, no, that, is the way, that isn't the way it should be. We should honor people. So there, there's a closeness to us. Yes, we recognize that this person is amongst us, and yet because of some things that work in their life, there is a gap between us. But we should never be the kind of people that worship people. And when people don't recognize in our ambition or in the spaces that God has placed us, that we are people who are called to serve, what, what ends up happening is that rather than people becoming people who are honored, people who people look at our lives because of closeness and they say, this person has something that I can become. We actually end up becoming people that are worshipped. But because Solomon has that at the back of his mind, Solomon recognizes that the paradox of service that I should live in, the paradox of ambition that I should live in, is one where my service is characterized by being apart, yet among. And you see, this paradox, friends, flows from a high sense of commitment, a high sense of commitment. And Solomon recognizes ultimately that what God has called me to 
It's not so much to extend my kingdom. It's not so much for me to extend my name. It's not so much for me to make myself feel great, but actually so that people can, can lift their fullest potential and that this nation can become all that God has called it to be. And so there is a high sense of commitment. He stands above and yet he's relating with. He's apart yet among. Let that paradox characterize us. Let us not be boxed into the profile of, you know, whatever the corporate CEO looks like or the um, husband is meant to be or the parent is meant to be. We should live in the paradox of being apart yet among. Where people recognize that, no, there is a difference between me and this person, but at the same time, this person is one of us. And lastly, Solomon lives in the paradox of being great, yet ordinary. Being great, yet ordinary. He's strong, yet weak. He's apart, yet among, but he's great, yet ordinary. And so we see in verse 12, after Solomon has made this request to God, what happens in verse 12, can we have it up, is that God says, I will make your name great. And how he's going to do it is that he will give him all these things that Solomon has asked for, a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never be anyone like you, and there will never be, there's, there won't be anyone like you now, and there won't be anyone like you ever. And then in verse 13, when God goes on, God goes on to talk about how he's going to lengthen his days, and God goes on to talk about how he's going to extend his name and his territory. But you see, how does Solomon ultimately become great? Solomon becomes great by living in the ordinariness of where he's at. Solomon becomes great. God will extend Solomon's reign. God will make Solomon this person who becomes a larger-than-life figure. How? Yes, he's going to give him a wise and discerning heart, but how? Actually, it is by Solomon in his ordinariness. And many of us know this, friends, that the people that are great people, the people that we talk about as being the people at the top, people who are high, people who have accomplished things, when you read their stories, actually, it's not so much, yes, they had some great ideas, yes, they did one or two things right, but ultimately, it was that they continued in ordinariness. You see, greatness comes not by seeking it. Greatness comes by persevering in ordinariness. I was texting someone the other day, my uncle, who was his birthday, you know, and I said a number of things to him. And he was just saying, wow, like, I didn't even know when I was doing those things. And I made a big impression on somebody who I'm 12 years older than. And he became somebody that I was looking up to. Why? Because he was just doing a lot of ordinary stuff. And many times we think that the way that we wow our world is by being these people who actually have great ideas. These people who actually have accomplish great things, but actually, friends, the, the way we will wow our world, the way we will accomplish many of the things that God has called us to and live to the heights of greatness that we're aspiring to is by persevering in ordinariness, by persevering in kind word, by persevering in saying hi, by persevering in being the kind of person that people can relate with, by persevering in your exercises, if you're looking for a great body. By persevering in praying with your kids regularly, even when you don't feel like. By persevering in those things that you know actually have the most impact in, in reaching people around us. We become great by persevering in ordinariness. And where does this flow from? 
Or what does this, what, what, what fuels this paradox? It comes from actually having rightly ordered priorities. So being strong yet weak comes from, being, from having a secure identity. Being apart yet among comes from having a high sense of commitment. Being um, great yet ordinary comes from recognizing that our priorities must be rightly ordered. So what are your priorities, friends? If your priority ultimately is to make a name for yourself, if your priority is not service, it will mean that actually how you think about greatness will be just in terms of what you can accomplish by yourself. But if our priority is recognizing that we are called to serve the people around us, that we are called to be somebody who helps somebody else along their journey to change how we actually serve and lead in the spaces that God has called us to. Three paradoxes that Solomon shows us. Strong, yet weak. Apart, yet among. Being great, yet ordinary. And maybe some of you are saying, okay, man, I get that, but what about balance? Because it's true. Like, these things are true, but the problem is that people actually will take you for granted if you begin to practice these things, right? And I think, yes, you're right, I would just argue that I don't think the Bible calls us to balance, ever. <laughs> the Bible doesn't call us to balance. The Bible calls us to rhythm, living rhythmically. And so I've asked these guys to help me, right? This is why they came out. So, caveat. Right, every analogy breaks down at some point. For those of us who like to overthink things, for those of you who have music theory degrees, like Elijah here, every analogy breaks down at some point. So this is not a musical analogy. This is a living analogy. All right, I've said the context. Now, so here's what balance looks like, guys. Wow. It's very balanced, right? They're all playing the same thing, doing the exact same thing. There is no... With this, kind of, with this kind of formula, you can be sure that drum will not be too loud. You can be sure that somebody will not, you know, overplay. Everybody is doing the right thing where they're supposed to be doing it, right? It's balanced. All right. Let's see what rhythm or rhythmic living looks like. problem with the first one? Oh, wait, 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 first. Who preferred the first one to the second one? Let's see the weird people here. <laughs> it was music, right? We, we can actually sing to it. We know the song there, so that's not the problem. The only problem is that it doesn't bring out the sweetness that that song was designed to bring. 
It doesn't lead us to the place that that song was meant to take us to. It doesn't show us who that song was meant to show us. You know, that's, that's what was meant to show us. And that's exactly the problem with balanced living. When people say we should live in balance, it's, ah, run from that extremo, run from that extremo, but just be in this sort of neutral center so that you don't go off. And the problem is that you never, your life never actually becomes the music that God intends it to be. But when we live in rhythm, what, rhythm basically means that you're holding things in tension. There is the tension of this guy is drumming. Don't let him confuse me. And some of us, actually, we don't like the drums, right? The drum is too loud. And then there are some of us, it's the keyboard. The keyboard, I can't hear the keyboard. The keyboard is too noisy. Or the guitar, there's something wrong with the guitar. And the problem is that, actually, yes, by being on rhythm, there will be times when we sort of swing to one end or the other. But actually, because we want to, our lives to be the kind of life that brings out music, there's something controlling that makes sure that even when we go off, our life still continues singing the song that God has designed it to be. Friends, God has not called us to balance living. God has called us to rhythmic living. And that rhythmic living will happen as we live in the tension, the paradoxes. That is actually how our lives will become the, life, the kind of lives that sing the song of who God is. We must be people who are strong yet weak. Must be people who are apart yet among. Must be people who are great yet ordinary. And so see what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. I love these words so much. He says, after he's asked God for something, he says, this is how God responds to him. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. It is when you are living in the tension of being great and ordinary, when you are living in the tension of being apart and among, when you are living in the tension and the paradox of being, what's the third one? Remind me. No, you people are not listening. Strong and weak. Yes, thank you. It happens, it happens. You forgot. When you're living in those tensions, friends, that is when ultimately the power of God rests on you. Do you want to experience the power of God? Do you want to live the life that God has actually called you to be? You must be someone who lives in the paradox of ambition. But that leads me to my third point. Because ultimately, as the story progresses, we see that God had designed Solomon to be a paradigm. And if you're wondering what a paradigm is, a paradigm basically is a pattern or example of something. And so God's design with Israel's leaders was that they would be the ideal Israelite. They would become this example, this model, this paradigm, this pattern that people actually look up to and they would embody what God was designing Israel to become. But the story, friends, is that Solomon actually fails to live up to that expectation. You know the story. He married too much, had too much money, had too much wisdom to his own um, detriment. And when his life ends, when we are told in chapter 12, when his life ends in 1 Kings chapter 12, this is what people actually say about him. He says, your father put a heavy yoke on us. And I pray, friends, that our lives will be characterized this way in Jesus' name. 
That when it comes the time for you to be buried and put in the ground, that people won't lie about your legacy. Because many times, many of us know that actually those burials, they are lies. Lies, pure lies. We love the people, but man, this person lived anything but an exemplary life. And I think what happened is that when they laid Solomon in the ground, like everybody was like, oh, our great king is gone. We miss him. It was great. It was all of that. But then when they were with his son and they were given away, say, ah, daddy was not a good man. <laughs> he was not a good man. He put a heavy yoke on us. And then in verse 6, this is what Rehoboam then asked for counsel. He says, how would you advise me to answer these people? And then in verse 7, he says, if you will serve these people. In other words, somewhere along the line, Solomon forgot that the whole purpose of this enterprise was actually to serve. That the whole purpose of this enterprise was to become this kind of person who embodied his ambition in a way that it was purely for the service of others. And friends, what happened with Solomon is that at the end of the day, it isn't just that Solomon missed the way, but because Solomon missed the way, his son missed the way. And the kingdom became split. And because his kingdom was split, two nations then formed from this one nation, the northern nation of Israel, sometimes called Israel or Samaria, and the southern kingdom of Judah. As you read the story along, I think in, in, in chapter 18 of 2 Kings, what ultimately ends up happening is that the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, are led into slavery and we never hear anything about them again, ever. And the people of Judah are taken into slavery in, in, in Babylon and the, end, the whole um, um, rulership of Judah actually comes to an end. Why? Because somebody forgot that the whole point of this thing was service. And so we read the story along, and you see that in Ezra, when we start looking at Ezra, that ultimately the kingdom ends, the kingdom divides, the kingdom lands terribly. And the question, it seems, the question that the Old Testament wants to answer or is asking and wants us to answer is, who will be this true king that God's people need? Who will be this true king who embodies not just the being distinct but yet being among, not just the greatness but yet the ordinariness, not just the regularity of life but also being set apart? Who will be this person? And book to book, book to book is looking for the answer and we don't find the answer until we get to Matthew chapter 1. And in Matthew chapter 1, of all the ways Matthew could have started, Matthew starts with a genealogy. And the genealogy is tracing who? It's tracing the royal line. And so it begins with Abraham. It begins with David. And ultimately moves to the person of Jesus Christ. And so that when we get to Matthew chapter 12 verse 42, this is how Jesus Christ talks about himself. He says, someone greater than Solomon is here. And so Jesus' point is that all the things Solomon failed to be, this is he. All the ways Solomon failed to serve, this is he. All the ways Solomon failed to become the ideal Israelite that God had designed, this is he. And we can actually stop at that, friends, but it gets even better because in Mark chapter 10, after Jesus has appointed people to follow him, like it happens with all of us. Is who is going to become the next CEO? 
Who is going to become the next person who will take over from Jesus? And Jesus enters that debate and he enters that and he says in verse 42, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Friends, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Jesus is saying that he recognizes that the purpose of this ambition was to serve. The paradox of his ambition is in being great yet ordinary, being the Lord and yet being the servant. And oh, Jesus, so that means that you're actually now going to just lead us into a political enterprise, right? But Jesus says in verse 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, Jesus is the paradigm. And those of us who have been joined to Jesus, because we are joined to Jesus, we not just have the purpose of our ambition redeemed, we not only can live in the power of the paradoxes, but we can also become paradigms for other people. And so that when God gives us these ambitions, when God brings those ambitions to pass, we ultimately become the kind of people who serve the people around us. Can we just bow down our heads as we pray? Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, we hope you join us in the mission of renewing Lagos with the gospel by sharing it, rating this podcast, and following us. These actions help us reach more people with the gospel. You can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle at City Church Lagos. City Church. Love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.